Amen. Acts chapter 18, beginning with verse 1, we're just going to dive right into our text. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Now, as we do, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're working our way through the book of Acts. If you'd like more information about Paul's experience in Athens, I would recommend you go back and listen to last week's Bible study. Our motion of the text, Paul's in the midst of his second missionary journey. He arrived to Athens with some companions who were overseeing him. He sent them back to Berea to get Paul and Silas. He's in Athens alone. He goes to Mars Hill alone. He preaches this sermon alone. He leaves Athens alone. And he travels some 48 miles southwest to the city of Corinth. Now, before we continue, let's just set a bit of a profile of this ancient city. With a massive canal linking the Aegean Sea with the Mediterranean, and I think we have a picture of it. This is actually live Google Maps. You can still see uh, the canal that was dug that's connecting the Aegean in the north, Mediterranean in the south. There was two harbors with Corinth, facilitated the two. Ships would come to one. They would go through the canal. They would exit the other. We also have a picture, I think, of the canal itself just to give you an idea of what this is like. Corinth, as a result, was a commercial center for the Roman world. Almost all shipping traffic that would try to go from the east to the west or the west to the east relied on Corinth's strategic importance. As a result, you can imagine being an economic center, Corinth boasted a wealthy population. Estimates have the, uh, the population totaling up to a half a million people living there in Corinth in the first century. Beyond being an economic center, with a constant and healthy supply of merchants coming in, coming out from all over the world. Even among Roman standards, Corinth was renowned. She was world famous for her debauchery and immoral vices. See, within Corinth, there was a temple dedicated to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, beauty. This temple featured within its worship over 1,000 full-time temple prostitutes. To go worship the goddess Aphrodite, you would go and proposition one of these prostitutes. That was the worship to the god of Aphrodite. Corinth was the original sin city. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. In Roman times, to be referred to as a Corinthian didn't mean necessarily you were from Corinth. It meant it was slang referring to you as being either sexually perverse or just a full-blown drunkard. You didn't want to be referred to as you're a Corinth. That guy's a Corinthian. Even prostitutes from other cities around the world were called Corinthian companions. Well, we're told that Paul he arrives to Corinth. Verse two, he finds. A certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, and this was a city up towards the Black Sea, northern Turkey, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and Paul came to them. So here's Paul. He arrives in Corinth. He's alone in a very darkened, immoral, lost, wicked, perverse city. Paul is in need of of some companionship, some Christian companions. We already got that sense when he was in Athens. Paul didn't like ministering or traveling alone. Not only was he alone in Athens, now he's alone again in Corinth, and he wants to connect with some like-minded people. Like, never forget, the Christian life is not a solo proposition. The Christian life, scripturally speaking, requires you to have like-minded friends brothers and sisters in the Lord who can accompany you on your journey of faith. It would seem, recognizing Paul's need, God was one step ahead of this apostle. He gets to Corinth. Sure enough, his path crosses with that of, we're told, a certain Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Now, in introducing to us Aquila and Priscilla, Luke tells us that they had come to Corinth from Rome specifically as a result of an edict. 
issued by Claudius Caesar in 49 AD, which expelled all Jews from the Roman capital. There's been some debate in regards to why Claudius would kick the Jews out of Rome in particular, and yet we find extra biblical historians that give us some clues. According to Suetonius, Claudius was forced to take this particular measure as a result of unrest within the Jewish community in Rome. Suetonius claims that there was an internal confrontation happening in the Jewish community taking place as a result of a certain man, a certain man named Crestus. Now, it could be that Crestus was a slang terminology used to describe Christ. This seems to be historically accurate, for while we have no mention biblically of the gospel's arrival to Rome, there is some evidence that it could have been uh, Peter, accompanied by Mark. We've included an article, uh, c316.tv. You can read it on your own. I don't agree with everything about the article, but it is an interesting theory, placing Peter's arrival much earlier than, than many others think. We don't know how the church in Rome was started, but we do know by 49 AD, a church in Rome already existed. It seems likely, very likely, consistent even with the reaction we've seen over and over and over of the Jews, Right, you know, Paul would go to a city, he would preach the gospel in the synagogue, there would be immediately a division, right, that would occur within the synagogue. Some Jews might believe, Hellenistic God-fearers would follow, some of the Jews would convert. But Jesus was a stumbling block. Paul would preach Christ, some Jews would convert, but others, well, they would create riots. Unrest would be fostered. It could be that the same thing's happening in the Jewish community of Rome, which is why Claudius has to expel all of them. You see, at this point historically, there was no distinction between Christianity and Judaism. Claudius kicked out all of, all of the Jews, including Christians, in order to preserve, to restore peace. And because we have no mention in our, in our passage of Aquila and Priscilla's conversion, we're not told that Paul comes to Corinth, encounters Aquila and Priscilla, leads them to the Lord, and then enjoys fellowship. The idea presented within the text is that Paul gets to Corinth, finds Aquila and Priscilla, and they immediately have something in common, that they're both Jesus followers. It's likely that Aquila and Priscilla were members of the church there in Rome. As the, unrested, as the unrest unfolded, they were kicked out, expelled from Rome. They come to Corinth. On a side note, um, it should be pointed out that Aquila and Priscilla would briefly return to Rome, but not before teaming up here with Paul and Corinth, and later, as we'll see in the chapter in Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla. These two are, are a special couple. They're unique in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I find about them that's so fascinating and very encouraging is that while we have no mention of them ever preaching the gospel, they lived the gospel by the lives that they lived. They never preach a sermon, they never write a book, at least that we have reference of. We're not even told that, that, that they were elders within the church or had any particular point of leadership in general. They just loved Jesus and they served Jesus. They demonstrated through their very lives the gospel, which is very relevant for us because there was two things in particular we see from this holy couple. First, Aquila and Priscilla undoubtedly supported their local church. No matter what city they were in, they supported their church. And writing to the Romans in chapter 16, verses 3 and 5, Paul would encourage the believers there to, quote, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church, note, that is in their home. So in Rome, where was the church? It was in the home of Aquila and Priscilla. They loved Jesus, they loved the church, and they opened up their home to the people of God. It was a meeting place for discipleship and Bible teaching. It's a cool thing. Beyond that, again, writing from Ephesus to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, Paul would say, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. 
with the church that is in their house. So not only is the church in Rome residing in one of the houses of Aquila and Priscilla, but the church in Ephesus would also meet where? In the home of Aquila and Priscilla. So they supported their church, demonstrating their relationship with Jesus, supporting a local fellowship. But beyond that, we also can note that they supported godly servants. As we see here in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla not only befriended Paul, but they established a relationship with the apostle that would last a lifetime. At the very end of his life, some of the last recorded words we have of the apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 verse 19, Paul goes out of his way to make sure his regards are passed along to Prisca and Aquila. And and note that the ministry of supporting godly ministers wasn't exclusive to Paul. We'll see later in the chapter that in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla would come alongside of another young man God was using in great ways, a man by the name of Apollos. So they never preached the gospel as we have record, but they lived the gospel by supporting their church and supporting godly servants. But you know, there's another reason that Aquila and Priscilla kind of demand our attention. And that is the fact that they present for us the only example of a successful Christian marriage in the New Testament. It's actually kind of shocking. It it kind of caught me aback a little bit as I was studying this because you can't find another married couple referenced in the New Testament. Aside from Mary and Joseph, but during the church age, the church period. Most of the biblical married couples that we reference are all Old Testament characters. Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac uh, and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, right? We run through the list, Solomon and the Shulamite. But in regards to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit poured out during the, the church age. The only married couple is Aquila and Priscilla. Yes, Peter references his wife, but never in the context of ministry. Which is interesting to me. The best explanation I can come up with for this reality is that the, the, the primary example for marriage, like the primary example the Holy Spirit wants to place out there for our emulation, we see it over and over and over again, is Jesus and the church. Like that's the marriage. Like that's the whole plan. You want to know how you should model your marriage? Look at Jesus, look at the church. Fellas, you want to know how you should treat your wife? Look at how Jesus treats the church. Women, you want to know how you should treat your husband? Look at how the church should ideally treat Jesus. Like the whole example in scripture seems to be that the reason there are no married couples mentioned is that it should be Jesus and his bride as the example. But in my mind, it's kind of like that's the intention of the Holy Spirit. But then as the Spirit's inspiring Luke here, The Spirit's like, yeah, I got to include Aquila and Priscilla. I can't leave them out. I know the intention here is Jesus in the church, but you know what? Aquila and Priscilla, they've got to be mentioned. I got to go on the record. They have to be included. These two, this man and this woman, they loved Jesus. They loved his church. They loved each other. You know, never once do we have either of these two mentioned in Scripture independent of the other. They're always mentioned together, Aquila and Priscilla. They're a unit. They were a team in the truest sense. It's also been pointed out that every time you find them mentioned in scripture, the order of their name is reversed. Like it's never consistently Aquila and Priscilla. Even in chapter 18, you'll see Aquila and Priscilla and then later Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila's never placed over Priscilla, and Priscilla's never placed over Aquila. They were equals. They had different roles, different capacities, but they were one in the truest sense. They worked together, serving Jesus, blessing the church, blessing the servants of the church as a cohesive unit in a cohesive way. I love it. Aquila and Priscilla, godly examples. So verse three, because Paul was of the same trade as Aquila and Priscilla, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. Aside from the common relationship that they all had with Jesus, they were Christians, followers of the way. Luke tells us that Paul connected with Aquila and Priscilla because they were all of the same trade or literally the same craft. 
Luke says, for by occupation, they were tent makers. And you can translate this Greek word tent makers in two ways. You can translate it as tent maker, or you can translate it as leather worker. Either way, the reference here is that Paul stayed with them, Aquila and Priscilla, and worked, which kind of gives us the indication that the way Aquila and Priscilla supported Paul and Corinth is that they gave him a job. Now, a question should arise as we're traveling through the book of Acts and we get to this point. And the question is, why is this the first time we have mention of Paul's trade? Like we have no other mention of Paul making tents until this very moment. And I think the answer is fairly simple. This, this moment in Corinth is the first time since Tarsus that Paul needed to earn a living apart from the ministry. It seems contextually consistent. And, and, and let me kind of give you a, a radical idea you can think about on your own. But first mention, and this is the first mention of a trade, implies a reason for the previous exclusion. So the reason it's mentioned here should also get us to consider why it's excluded beforehand. And it seems as though that up until this point in ministry, since Paul was recruited by Barnabas to come from Tarsus to Antioch, that the church, whether it be the church there in Antioch or the churches that Paul planted, either way, it seems as though the church supported the Apostle Paul, which allowed him to engage in full-time ministry, but now that he's been detached and separated from Silas and Timothy, not just in Athens, but now in Corinth, he's run out of money. So he starts working to provide for himself. The funds weren't available, so he rolled up his, his shirt sleeves and he got to work which is cool, but also limiting. Because we're told, look at it, that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Now, you'll notice something different there. Beforehand, we're, Paul gets to a town and we're told that daily he would go to the synagogue, daily he would go into the marketplace, that his ministry, his outreach, his evangelism was often daily, but not here. Because he's working a full-time job because he's having to provide for his own needs, we're told that his evangelistic outreach or opportunities are now limited to just the Sabbath. So he's still engaging in ministry, but because he's got to work a job, his opportunity for ministry is limited. He doesn't have as much time, naturally. So it's reserved to just the Sabbath, reasoning, persuading both the Jews and the Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia... Paul was compelled by the Spirit. It would seem that he no longer has to make tents at this moment. Silas, Timothy bringing funds from Macedonia. And what church was in Macedonia? The church of Philippi. Don't forget about Lydia, who's a very wealthy, generous, benevolent lady, who's a cornerstone of that particular church. The Philippian jailer. Remember, all these folks are sending uh, funds, supporting Paul. And he's compelled that I, I can... I could take my evangelism to another level, such as, compelled by the Spirit, he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, which gives us this structure that he kind of ups the ante, ups the intensity, pushes the pressure. But when they opposed him, speaking of the Jews, and blasphemed, he took his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own hands. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. <laughs> Now, as we've seen over and over and over and over again in Paul's outreach to the Jews, problem after problem arose. I mean, Paul, you got to understand, loved the Hebrews. They were his brother and they were his people. He had a passion for proclaiming to them Jesus as their Savior. These Corinthians, these Hebrew Corinthians, we're told, though, opposed Paul and blaspheme the name of Christ. So, in a dramatic moment, Luke tells us that Paul shakes off his garments, indicating his intention to leave them, and as we're told, focus his attention now specifically on ministering to the Gentile community. I'm done with you. In a real sense, he's giving up. You oppose me, and now you're blaspheming Christ. I'm done, I'm out, peace, drop the mic, walk out. 
Like, that's what's happening. I can't take it anymore. I'm giving up on you. I'm waving the white flag. Fine. Have it your way. David Guzik observes this was a dramatic way of expressing his rejection of their rejection. You're going to reject Jesus? I'm going to reject you. I'm out. (laughs) I hope you understand your job is not to save people. Like there's only one savior, only one adequate one, and that's Jesus. You see, your job when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to fulfilling the commission for all of us to be salt, to be light in the world, your job's to just communicate the truth. Then it's the job of the hearer to receive the truth in faith or reject it. It's God's job to save the soul. Sadly, we see here that there does come a time when it's okay to give up and move on as long as you've been diligent to fulfill the calling God has given you. In John 4, verse 37, Jesus acknowledges an interesting reality we should keep in mind. One man's job is to sow, and another man's job is to reap. Sometimes the person sowing the seed isn't there to reap the harvest. Sometimes he moves on to sow in a different field. But God is the one in control of it all. Sometimes you've been sharing the gospel with a friend and sharing the gospel with a friend. You've been sowing seed after seed after seed and you think nothing's happening. You're being opposed. Christ is being defamed. And you reach the point, you're like, you know what? I just can't take it anymore. I'm gonna find someone else that might listen. And you do that. And you know what tends to happen? Jesus sends someone else right behind you who says the same thing to that friend. And the spirit moves and they give their life to Jesus. Like your job is not reaping the harvest. It's Jesus's. Your job is to plant seed. It's to be faithful. But when you're opposed, move on. This is what Paul's doing. Now what makes this dramatic moment all the more interesting is what Paul says on his way out. So he's frustrated and he's shaking off his clothes, this dramatic expression, I'm done with you people. And on his way out, he tells them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. it, It seems likely that this reference was understood by the Jews, for it was a direct reference to something that Ezekiel did. In Ezekiel 33, verses seven and nine, the Lord told the prophet, I'll read it for you. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and you should warn them. When I say to the wicked, a wicked man, you shall surely die and you do not speak to warn the wicked of his way. Well, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked, to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, or or he doesn't listen to you, he shall die in his iniquity, but you shall be delivered from your soul. Like as a watchman, equipped with the truth, knowing reality, like our job is is to speak it to this generation. Destruction's coming, judgment's coming, repent, turn, there's Jesus. Like our job is to be that mouthpiece. We sang it, make of me your hands and feet. I wanna be to the people around me what you want me to be to the people around me, make of me. Like that's our job, that's our role. We have a responsibility to declare the word of the Lord to the lost people around us. And if they fail to heed our warning, the judgment is on them. But, and this is something you should chew on and I'll just let it ring out. If you fail to sound the warning, it seems by Paul's example and his admission here in Ezekiel that God will hold you to account, that you remain silent knowing destruction was coming. Friend, when it comes to the evangelism, when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to reaching this lost world, I hope you know the stakes are high. It is life and death, heaven and hell, eternity weighs in the balance. Well, verse seven, Paul departed from there, entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. 
Then Crispus, I love these names. Crispus, it sounds like he should, he should be a, uh, a serial. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household. Many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Paul, he throws down the gauntlet, shuts down ministry in the synagogue. He says he's heading to the Gentiles. <laughs> what does he do next? I love it. It's really funny. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm leaving you. And he literally goes next door. Like the house of justice shared property, probably shared a wall with the synagogue. I'm leaving you, and he doesn't go very far. He doesn't have to go very far. He just goes next door. Then, in an interesting twist, it would seem in response to what Paul had communicated that the ruler of the synagogue, the man that was in charge of, of opening up the synagogue, taking care of the maintenance, uh, this guy Crispus, so convicted by what Paul had to say, believed on the Lord with all of his household, Crispus will later be mentioned when Paul writes to the first Corinthians uh, in chapter one, verse 14. A dear brother, someone we'll meet in heaven. Now don't overlook the last few words we read. It does demand our attention. Corinth, Vegas, debauchery, immorality. It's like the largest bunny ranch in the world. I mean, it is as lost, as dark as you can get. Not exactly the place many of us would go to plant a church. Not a place many of us would even think the message of the gospel would resonate. Sodom and Gomorrah, so to speak. And yet we're told that many of the Corinthians, hearing, hearing what? The good news. The good news of Jesus salvation through Jesus. What happened? They believed and were baptized. We should consider, how do we reach a culture mild in immorality? You think it's a message of condemnation? Going to the street corner, condemning people and their sin, picketing the strip clubs. You think that's how we change or reach a Corinth? a message of condemnation or a message of the law, that we should stand at the street corner, tell them all the things they need to be doing, doing right, condemning them for what they're doing wrong, telling them what they should be doing right. No, it's not a message of condemnation or a message of the law, nor is it a method of equivocation. Maybe we just need to add a little bit of Corinthian element in our worship service. Heaven forbid, no. What reached Corinth? Paul preaching the gospel. It wasn't condemnation. It wasn't the law. It wasn't equivocation. It was an alternative. It was something that contrasted everything else. Hey, you can live the life you're living this Corinthian way, or there's another way. The truth and the life. This man Jesus and the life he wants to give Paul goes into Corinth, and he doesn't take a baseball bat and try to drive out the darkness. You know, if we turned the lights out and gave you a bat and said, drive out the darkness, you're gonna hurt a lot of people and destroy a lot of things, a.k.a. religion. <laughs> Just hurts people and destroys community. The easiest way to deal with the darkness, turn on the light. Like, we're to be light, you know, light doesn't have to work real hard to be light. It just is. And it shines. And it contrasts. You know, light, you don't know light by what it says. I've never heard light say anything. You know light by what you see. If we're called to be light, the world will know you by what they see by what you do, not by what you say. And if we're called to be salt, you know, you also don't hear salt. You experience salt, you taste it. Like that's what we're called to be. And this is what Paul is being in Corinth. It was a message of salvation that resonated in Corinth. Now the Lord spoke to Paul, verse nine, in the night by a vision saying, do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you. 
and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. So Paul continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. At first glance, this passage is is rather shocking to me. Like, did you catch what's happening here? Like the flow of the passage? I mean, the very command and this vision of the night, God comes and speaks to Paul. This command, do not be afraid. What does it do? It reveals the existence of a fear that's creeping up within the apostle. A fear? And Paul? Wait a second. The two don't go hand in hand. I mean, Paul is fearless. I mean, everything we've seen, right? Paul's the guy that gets stoned to death, gets up, goes back into town. Like, we don't equate Paul with being afraid, but it seems here that there is a fear creeping up, which is why God encourages him. Do not be afraid. He was fearless. He was bold. He had endured persecution. Paul was tenacious. But in Corinth, at this point, Paul is struggling. Now, in fairness, don't detach Paul from his humanity. It's a person just like us. And I am sure that the pattern of ministry from his first missionary journey to the second was growing tiring burdensome. I mean, think about it. Paul would arrive. He'd pour his heart into evangelism. He'd see lives transformed by the gospel. He would plant and establish churches. And yet over and over and over again, his joy would be cut short and he'd be forced to leave. He'd be beaten. He'd be verbally slandered. He would often have to run for his life under the cover of darkness, leaving friends without saying goodbye. People he cared about. I'm sure Paul's pattern, arrive, teach, speak, riot, was old. Paul here in Corinth, seeing this cool work happen, I can imagine, just as a pastor myself, if you think of Paul as a missionary, he was very much a pastor. He was a missionary because he couldn't stay in one place very long because the people wouldn't let him. He was that polarizing, that type of guy, but he wanted to just hang out, experience relationships, the fruit of his labor, see people growing and maturing. He's afraid that this might not happen, that the pattern will reoccur in Corinth. Fear. Fear doesn't exist in a vacuum. Fear at its core is based in a sense of impending loss. Which is why we often say when a person is left with nothing to lose, they often have nothing to fear. Like, you know why people fear being diagnosed with cancer? It's not because of the pain that comes with cancer, but it's because of the impending sense of what they're going to lose. Like, cancer often means a loss of life, or at least the quality of life. Sometimes it's the loss of family, the loss of a future, the loss of your hair. Why do people fear losing their job? It's not because they don't believe they can get another one. It's, it's because of loss, what they will lose when they lose their job. Maybe their home or a lifestyle they've grown accustomed to. Security, the steady paycheck. Sometimes we fear losing a job because with that job, we would lose a sense of purpose or maybe a social status, a direction. I lose, now what am I doing? I went to school for that. And now I can't get back in the field and we've lost something, which is why we fear in much the same way. Why was Paul afraid? He was afraid of opposition in Corinth because of the things he knew he'd lose. Community with his friends, the opportunity to minister to these young Corinthian believers. Rest the comfort of just enjoying settling in for a season. It would seem from our text that in his fear, Paul was even thinking about maybe toning it down a bit, playing it cool, maybe not being as polarizing. You know, we all experience fear. I mentioned cancer, losing a job, but what are you afraid of? What fear is there deep in your heart 
that you've wrestled with because not only do we all experience some type of fear, but we can learn a lot by looking at how God addresses Paul's fear here in Corinth. As a matter of fact, we're going to kind of close by, by establishing six things you should consider when facing your own fear. First, did you notice that it was not Paul that came to God? It was God who came to Paul. Did you see that? Now the Lord spoke to Paul. You see, God was the one that acknowledges the existence of Paul's fear. And on the surface, on the surface, everything seems to be going great for the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, at this point, Silas and Timothy have caught up with him. He's got these new cool friends, Aquila and Priscilla. The gospel was changing lives, a revival, a moving of the the work of God was happening in Corinth. The church was, was taking shape, taking form. And yet while everything on the surface looked like it was great, like it was all set up for Paul, God, God knew what was happening here. God knew what was happening below the surface. Everyone else would look at Paul and there's, it's all good. Sunny days. But Paul was worried. He was filled with fear. You see, God knew the fear that Paul had yet to vocalize. But then what happens? We're told, secondly, that God encouraged resolve and the face of fear. Now, the Lord spoke to Paul, and what were the first words? Do not be afraid. You know, knowing Paul's fear, God's first words here are strong. Did, did you kind of get that? Like he's not handling Paul with kid gloves or allowing him to kind of remain ignorant of his inner feelings. He calls him on the carpet. He gives him a command. It's a definitive command. It's directive and strong. Paul, I know what's going on in your heart. I know your reasoning. I understand your fear. But you cannot allow this poisonous thought to take root. I know there's a fear welling up, but don't dwell on it. Don't succumb to it. Make the right choice. Paul, do not be afraid. Do not. Keep in mind, when it comes to fear, while fear is not a tool of God's using, it is one of the most worn instruments in Satan's workbox. Fear does not come from God. Fear comes from the enemy, where faith is always found in the advance. It is fear that petrifies a man and his present position or manifests itself in a full-bore retreat. Faith causes me to move forward, to run with endurance. Fear causes me to stop in my tracks or run the other direction. Fear is not a work of God. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. It's a work of Satan. It's a work of the enemy. It's a ploy whereby Satan might steal from you, kill you, and destroy what God's wanting to do in your life. Fear is not a good thing. It's not a healthy thing. It's not a godly thing. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but what? Of power and of love and of sound mind. Paul, do not be afraid. And then what happens? God commanded action in spite of fear. Do not be afraid, but go speak and do not be silent. You know the quickest way, the easiest way to place a thought into into captivity? The quickest way to dispel its power, the power of fear, the influence of fear, is to immediately act contrary to that fear itself. Like it's simply a truth that the longer you allow fear to fester, the harder and harder and harder it is to overcome that fear. God knows it's welling up within Paul. God knows that what might be manifested is that he toned down the message. So God says, do not be afraid, go speak immediately. You need to go act contrary to what's happening in your own heart. This is not me, this is the enemy, act against it. Because the longer you wait, the harder it is. 
Within youth ministry, we would take our high schoolers up to a facility in Virginia. It's called Headwaters Lodge, in the middle of nowhere, 45 minutes from your closest cell signal. Great place to take high schoolers, because you didn't have to worry about phones, because they wouldn't work. But one of the activities, one of the things that we would do while we were there was a high ropes course. Some of you might be familiar with it. And there was one segment, one part of the high ropes course where they had placed this really small wooden platform about 150 feet in this pine tree. It was more like 25, but it looked way up there. And to get there were like these rickety metal spikes. You weren't sure we're going to stay in the tree. And it was a pine tree. That tree wasn't going to go anywhere. But man, that thing moved like one of those inflatable things at like a car lot. You know what I mean? That tree was all over the map. And so what you would do is you would have to climb up to this platform. And you would have to stand there. And then they'd clip you in. And you would go ziplining through the woods like across this ravine to the other side. Now, my favorite part of this, because I don't really have problems with heights, I love being on the platform and watch, watching all the high schoolers deal with this. You know, needless to say, I wasn't totally encouraging. I mainly made fun of them. They would get there, I mean, shaking. And the tree's moving, and they're shaking. And it's like, you need to go. No. No. I need to go down. And, okay, go down. No, I can't go down. The only way down is that way, bud. The longer they stood on that platform, you think it was easier? No, finally, it'd be like, okay, we need to pray about this. He's clipped in, right? Okay. Let's pray about this. Take his hands, and then push him. Because somebody else needs to come up. Like, you're never going. Like, once you get to about five minutes, you are not jumping off of that thing. Your youth pastor who loves you needs to push you. Because you got to go. The people that had no problems, the people who were afraid, like, were honest about it, but I'm overcoming my fear. You know the strategy? Boom, boom, boom. I'm not looking down. I get up, clamp me in, boom, I'm gone like as fast as possible. I have a fear. This fear doesn't want me to step off of this thing. I've got to act immediately against it. And when you do, you can overcome. But the longer you wait, the harder it is. See, in Paul's case, because he feared continuing to speak would inevitably yield an opposition forcing him out of town. It was essential that he do the very thing his fear was trying to deter. The only way to resist the negative effects of fear is to immediately act against it. Fear is Satan's mechanism of trying to rob you of something. God says, do not be afraid, and then do the opposite of what it's trying to get you to let go of. For Paul, it was essential that he speak all the more loudly and with a renewed vigor if he was to overcome. We're told for a year and a half, what is he doing? He's teaching the gospel. The fourth thing, is that God pointed to a reality that transcended fear. Do not be afraid, speak, for I am with you. You know, faced with fear and with the command to act contrary to fear, what singular motivation did Paul need to be an overcomer? Greater willpower? No. Knuckling down? No. The power of positive thinking. No. What Paul needed to remember first and foremost, if he was to act contrary to the real fear he had, was the knowledge that there was a sovereign God in control of all things. For I am. That's an interesting phrase in the Greek. It's literally... Diodote ego emi. Let me tell you what God is saying. Like it, it flows this way. Paul, do not be afraid. Speak and do not keep silent. Because, for, because I am. This phrase, emi ego, is the very name that God gave himself in Exodus 3 at the burning bush when Moses was like, what do I tell the people? Like what God sent me. And God says, I'll tell you. Here's my name. I am that I am. Emi, ego, emi, ego. I am. 
what is, what's happening here? Do not be afraid, speak. Why? I am Paul, I'm God. You know, Jesus would use the exact same phrase dramatically in Mark chapter six. The disciples are on the Sea of Galilee. They're freaking out, thinking they're gonna sink. sink. Jesus comes walking across the water like he's gonna pass them. And they're like, we're gonna die. And Jesus speaks out and he says, be of good cheer. It is I, Emi ego, I am. Do not be afraid. I hope you understand the motivation to act contrary to fear. It's not out there and it's not in here, but it's in him. It's not within, but it's in him. Psalm 56, be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day. Maybe that was a boss. For there are many who fight against me, the coworkers. Oh, most high, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. And God I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? For the psalmist, the motivation, it was not himself and it was not out there. It was the Lord. I will not fear. I've put my trust in you. And yet, you know, beyond the reality that there's a sovereign God, in the place of fear, you should also take great courage that this sovereign God, I am, is with you. I am with you. You know, when you realize that God will never leave you nor forsake you, it's a promise, Hebrews 13, 5. Any sense of impending loss, which is the driver of fear, will quickly subside, and here's why. For if my all, my everything is found in the God who's always with me and will never leave me nor forsake me, then what do I have to lose? Jesus would gloriously declare to us, his followers, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. You see, the motivator to the fact or or to the, the, the act of facing my fear the motivator to act instead of my fear, in opposition to my fear, it's not a greater sense on what I'm gonna lose. For the high school student standing up on the ledge, let me tell you what what doesn't help. Well, you know that, that, that weight capacity might not work for you. Like this tree, I mean, it could fall at any moment. That harness, I mean, it's probably been used a thousand times and it was only rated to be used a hundred. Hey, I just want to point out, like even if you jump off the platform, you still got to deal with like landing. Like more knowledge doesn't help our fear, does it? It makes us more afraid. But it's the reminder of not what I'd lose if I'm afraid that helps, but what I have already. See, that, that helps me. That motivates me. It's what I have in Jesus. Psalms 27, 1 and 3, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked come against me to eat up my flesh and my enemies, my foe, they stumble and fall. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fail. Though war may rise in this, in what? In the Lord, I will be confident. Joshua 1, 9, the Lord said, have I not commanded you, Joshua? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When you know God is with you, you can't lose. You can't lose. You know, fifth, in addition to all of this, God also emphasized a promise, didn't he? No one will attack you to hurt you. Now it's true, this particular promise was individually tailored to the Apostle Paul, applied specifically to his time in Corinth. We know that, I mean, Paul would ultimately die for Jesus. So it wasn't a a long-term promise, but an immediate one for this moment, for this time, for this situation. But I hope you know all obedience is aided by an understanding that God has made promises to you, to his children, promises he's faithful to make good on. 
I'm not going to read through them, but c316.tv, I've just given you a whole bunch written out so that if you're afraid this morning and when we go to continue in worship, you can read some and let the Lord speak to you promises that God is good for that will help you in your moment of fear. And finally, we see that God bestowed a greater purpose. He said, I have many people in this city. You know, psychologically, there may be no greater mechanism to get a person to act in spite of fear than the existence of a greater purpose that would be lost through inaction. Like any vet will attest that in the moment where fear might naturally render you paralyzed, the knowledge that the lives of your comrades, that the success of the mission depends on your swift action, that has an incredibly motivating effect. Watch Band of Brothers, the HBO series. Guys that are in the foxhole, petrified, there's an awareness, wait a second, I can't stay here because my brothers will die. The mission will fail. I must act because I'm looking at other people, not just myself. You know, like there's no extent that a mama bear will go to protect her cubs, even in the midst of all kinds of fear, if the lives of her babies are at stake. When there's a greater purpose, it moves us through fear in a hurry. For Paul, it was the knowledge that God had many people in this city ripe for the harvest. That was all the motivation Paul needed to boldly proclaim the gospel, even when he feared the consequences. God had a work. God had a plan. God was gonna do something awesome, and Paul was not going to let fear rob him of his involvement. He speaks boldly and loudly. He's determined to remain active. In the face of fear, it's okay, friend, to acknowledge his existence. <laughs> now the Lord says to you, you might have everybody convinced, but not the Lord. He knows your heart. But you need to understand that you should refuse to give that fear power over your life by acting in spite of it. And the motivation it's not found here, it's not found within, but it's found by looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. For in Jesus, we have a God who is not only with you. I am that I am. What do you need? He is. But you have a God who has given you so many countless, unfailing, unwavering promises. God has a purpose. And don't allow fear to rob you of that. Faith in Jesus is the only true power that enables a person to move beyond the stagnating position of fear. Friend, fear is not what God has for you. He calls us to walk in the opposite of fear, that being faith.